Welcome to the latest on the law, a podcast of the Boston Bar Association. The Commonwealth's premier legal association, the BBA, is home to over 15,000 members and 140 institutional partners consisting of law firms, corporations, government agencies, legal aid organizations, and law schools. Visit us at bostonbar.org to learn more. Everybody, uh, my name is Ashley Obishan, and I am a co-chair of the Elder Law and Disability Committee of the Trusts and Estates section of the BBA. We have a great program this afternoon, two wonderful speakers um, who I'm going to introduce to you, and then I'm going to hand it off to them to take it away. So our first presenter is attorney Sherry Gilmore. Sherry is an assistant bar counsel at the Office of the Bar Council in Massachusetts and has worked at the Office of Bar Counsel since 2008. In that capacity, Ms. Gilmore investigates and prosecutes lawyers before the Board of Bar Overseers in disciplinary proceedings. Prior to joining the OBC, Ms. Gilmore worked in private practice for more than 20 years, primarily in the area of civil litigation. Ms. Gilmore earned her undergraduate degree from Denison University and her law degree from Suffolk University Law School. So Sherry will present first, and then she will be followed by Dr. Rebecca Warshbaugh, who is the founder of Boston Metro Neuropsychology. She earned her doctorate in clinical psychology at Arizona State University and completed her internship at the Tucson Veteran Administration Hospital and her postdoctoral trainings at UMass Medical Center, Cambridge Health Alliance, and the home-based program. She most commonly works clinically with geriatric patients with dementia concerns, but also with adults of all ages with head injuries or other neurological conditions. She also sees clients for forensic evaluations to assess capacity, fitness for duty or return to work, disability, and impacts of injuries on functioning. So without further delay, Sherry, I'm going to hand it over to you. All right. Um, hello, everyone. Uh, first, I want to thank you uh, for joining us today. Um, and I want to talk a little bit about uh, obviously dealing uh, and representing clients with diminished capacity, as well uh, as give you just a little information about the Office of Bar Counsel. Uh, so uh, as uh, you know, I am an assistant bar counsel at the Office of Bar Counsel. Uh, the Office of Bar Counsel is the prosecuting arm of uh, the Board of Bar Overseers. Um, one question many folks have is they, you know, how do complaints come to us? And so uh, just, you know, so you know, we have very broad authority under the SJC rule 4 uh, colon 01 to investigate all matters of alleged misconduct that come to our attention from any source. We can open a file based on a news report, uh, an article that we see in Lawyers Weekly, perhaps uh, a court decision. Uh, we get direct reports from judges, clerks, can come from a client, an opposing client, uh, opposing counsel, so really any, any source. Uh, particularly in probate, uh, it's not unusual for a complaint to come to us from a nursing home, perhaps a visiting nurse, uh, DSS, or another fiduciary or public agency. Now, while the Massachusetts Rules of Professional Conduct apply to the representation of all clients, the representation of clients with a diminished capacity raises a distinct set of ethical issues. The rule, um, here, the rule that addresses lawyers dealing with diminished capacity is rule 1.14 of the rules of professional conduct. 
if a lawyer is disciplined uh, for violating this rule, most commonly it's when the lawyer either fails to communicate or consult with the client or the ward, uh, where perhaps they've disregarded the express wishes of the client or ward, or where their actions go beyond those which were reasonably necessary uh, to protect the client from substantial harm. And I am going to uh, talk a little bit more about that. Uh, I'm going to share my screen. Right. Uh, and is everyone able to uh, see uh, the PowerPoint front page? Let's see. I can see it, Cherry. Fabulous. Uh, all right. So um, the first situation that that uh, comes up in these cases and something to consider uh, is, you know, who uh, who is my client? Okay. And, you know, some, you know, examples, um, you know, sometimes there's confusion, right? And the confusion can arise in situations where, for example, an elderly person may be brought to the lawyer uh, by a family member for estate planning purposes. Uh, an attorney is representing both, you know, a husband and a wife in preparing estate plans. Uh, perhaps an attorney is asked to get a guardian or a conservator appointed for an incompetent person. And so it's important at the outset to make sure that you're identifying uh, who, who is your client. Uh, a couple of great places to, to, to look if you have any confusion is, you know, take a look at your fee agreement. Uh, who has signed the fee agreement? Uh, secondly, uh, you know, if you're drafting a document for a person, that uh, person is, is, is typically the client. Now, under rule, and by the way, this is a picture of one of my colleagues' grandmothers. So this is a this is a picture of a real per of a person that uh, that we know. Uh, but uh, you know, you have a duty to maintain a normal client relationship as much as possible uh, under Rule One Point One Four A, and that's even if your client has diminished capacity. The lawyer's required to take steps to maximize the client's ability to participate in a normal attorney-client relationship. The text of the rule itself says, when a client's capacity to make adequately considered decisions in connection with a representation is diminished, whether because of minority mental impairment, or for some other reason, the lawyer shall, as far as reasonably possible, maintain a normal client relationship, uh, normal attorney-client relationship. Now, uh, one particular provision of this section is, uh, that I want you to focus on, is it's in connection with a representation. Uh, so uh, just because the client may not be able to do other things in his or her life because of diminished capacity. If the client uh, can make adequately considered decisions, um, then um, you know you need to maintain a normal, as normal as possible, um, attorney-client relationship. One of the things you want to do and, and consider is is pay attention to your client's particular needs. 
So for example, uh, you know, a client might be able to make decisions in the morning, you know, but not in the afternoon. Um, remember that medication can alter cognition as well as some uh, physical illnesses from which a client might recover. Some clients uh, may understand things better in writing uh, than orally. You know, so perhaps, you know, you want to make sure that you're writing things down and giving them to the client to consider uh, if that's a better way for them to uh, understand the information so that they can, uh, you know, participate in the representation. Unfortunately, in some circumstances, maintaining that relation is impossible. And subpart B of Rule 1.14, in essence, authorizes a lawyer in appropriate circumstances to consult with individuals outside the attorney-client relationship to enable the lawyer to continue to represent the client. And again, uh, taking a look at the rule, uh, the text of, of subsection B is on the screen, when the lawyer reasonably believes that the client has diminished capacity that prevents the client from making an adequately decision regarding a specific issue that's part of the representation, is at risk of substantial physical, financial, or other harm unless ac action is taken, and cannot adequately act in the client's own interest, the lawyer may take reasonably necessary protective action in connection with the representation. And again, this includes consulting with individuals or entities that have the ability to take action to protect the client, and in certain cases, seeking the appointment of a guardian ad litem, conservator, or guardian. Now, um, you know, one issue that this necessarily raises, uh, as I'm sure many of you might be thinking about, is Rule 1.6, which deals with attorney-client confidentiality. And subsection C of the rule uh, addresses that head-on. And the rule states, again, confidential information relating to the representation of a client with diminished capacity is protected by Rule 1.6 when taking protective action pursuant to paragraph B, the lawyer is impliedly authorized under 1.6A to reveal confidential information about the client, but only to the extent reasonably necessary to protect the client's interests. Now, um, with our rules, uh, and I don't know how many of you have had occasion to, to consult them, but they are, they are followed by a series of comments. And in this particular rule, the comments are exceptionally helpful and provide some practical information with how to interpret uh, and apply Rule 1.14. Uh, there's a few comments that I wanna to bring to your attention, but I urge you that if you are representing clients with diminished capacity, take a few moments and take a look at all of the comments. Uh, first would be comment three, uh, and that imposes a further caveat, and it states that the lawyer is permitted to consult family members, even though the family member might be personally interested in the situation, but only if the lawyer reasonably believes that the family member will not act adversely to the client's interest. 
In some situations, when you're considering consulting a family member, you know, you may have no idea, you know, what the, you know, what the position of the family member is, uh, but you should certainly not be consulting uh, a family member if you reasonably believe uh, that they would act adversely to the client's interest. Another idea is to, um, under comment four, you know, if a legal representative is already appointed for the client, look to that representative. As, as far as comment five goes to the rules, that specifically talks about what protective actions that can be taken. Uh, and again, that includes consulting with family members, consulting with support groups, professional services, adult protection agencies, or other individuals or entities that have the ability to protect the client, and when appropriate, seeking the appointment of a guardian conservator or a guardian ad litem. Now, in taking the protective action as further guidance, the comment says that the lawyer should be guided by such factors as the wishes and values of the client to the extent known, the client's best interests, and the goals of intruding into the client's decision-making autonomy to the least extent feasible maximizing the client's capabilities and respecting the client's family and social connections. So this is a lot. I mean, it's a lot of consideration when you're dealing with a client with diminished capacity. They don't have an appointed representative that you know that you can speak with. And you have to make that call on whether you reasonably believe, you know, that they uh, are incapable of making uh, a decision that is relevant and as a particular issue with respect to the, 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 the subject matter. Comment seven uh, then goes on to make to provide us even more explicit information. Uh, and that uh, indicates that if the client is unable to make an adequately considered decision regarding an issue. And if achieving the client's express preferences would place the client at risk of a substantial harm, then the lawyer has four options. One, the attorney may advocate the client's express preferences regarding the issue. They may advocate the client's express preferences and request the appointment of a GAL or perhaps an investigator by the court uh, to help make an independent recommendation. They may request the appointment of a GAL or next friend uh, to provide direct counsel uh, to the uh, client with diminished capacity. And determine what the client or determine what the client's preferences would be if, she, if he or she were able to make an adequately considered decision regarding the issue and represent the client in accordance with that determination. So, again, lots and lots of challenges. Uh, comment eight addresses issues relating to the disclosure of the client's diminished capacity. So one has to be very careful because you certainly don't want to prejudice a client in the legal matter because now the opposing party or other side knows that the client's capacity is diminished. And again, you don't want to you know, adversely affect the client's interests. Um, for example, you know, raising uh, the question of diminished capacity could you know, lead to proceedings for involuntary commitment. Uh, 
you know, remember that confidential information is protected, uh, but with this exception, uh, you know, only to the extent reasonably necessary. Uh, but when taking the protective action under the rule, the lawyer can uh, and is impliedly authorized to make those uh, necessary disclosures. Uh, comments 9 and 10 uh, of the rule also deal with situations when an emergency situation uh, arises with the client. Subsection B of the rule referenced the guardianship, and I, I just want to spend a moment talking about that. So if there is an option to seek a guardianship over a client, that really depends on the existence uh, of a pending legal representation and some aspect of which requires a decision from the client that the client, due to diminished capacity, is unable to make. So again, uh, it has to relate to that particular uh, decision. So if the, if the client struggles in other areas of their life because of diminished capacity, uh, but not uh, with respect to making a particular decision, uh, that is something that you must consider before uh, you consider whether or not a guardianship is, is needed. Similarly, a lawyer may not represent a third party uh, in seeking appointment as a guardian or conservator over the clients, nor should the lawyer seek to serve as the guardian or conservator uh, over the lawyer's own client. Because again, that would raise issues of, of conflict of interest. You know, clients are, even, even clients with diminished capacity uh, are able to make decisions that uh, the lawyer doesn't feel is a good decision, but they can make wrong decisions, uh, you know, as long as they, it is well-reasoned uh, and they can make that determination. So remember that the lawyer cannot substitute his or her judgment. Uh, and that is when the situation arises sometimes when you need to look uh, look uh, to third parties. When dealing with uh, uh, an elderly client or a client that uh, you suspect may move into a period of diminished capacity, you know, a lawyer can certainly try to uh, address some of these issues to make it a little easier uh, in the future. So, for example, uh, before it becomes an issue, you know, a lawyer could suggest a voluntary measure like uh, the execution of a power of attorney if the client is competent to do so. Uh, the lawyer can also seek permission from the client uh, to talk to family members. Um, and also, you know, the lawyer must make it clear that the lawyer's sole client uh, is the client with a diminished capacity uh, and not the family member consulted. Uh, again, it, it, it can be difficult. Uh, it, it can um, you know, it can create uh, all kinds of angst for the lawyer representing the client, uh, but uh, these are issues that really are very, very important, uh, important to consider. Uh, when, um, you know, at the Office of Bar Counsel, you know, one of the uh, things that we do is we take ethical, um, we have an ethical hotline. 
uh, and that operates from uh, two to four on Monday, Wednesdays, and Thursdays. Uh, and this is a question uh, from two to four, I should say, it's uh, as noted on the screen. And when you call that hotline, uh, you're, when you're calling, it's not anonymous. Uh, you have to give your name because it is a service that we provide only to licensed attorneys in the Commonwealth. Uh, but our, our, what we try to do is help attorneys navigate through issues. And I know that I've received through the years many calls uh, on, on, these, on these issues of, you know, sort of what do I do? And, you know, how do I, how do I make a decision? What do I do next? And uh, again, we are here to try to help you. Um, also on our website, there is now a treatise uh, that is available. And we also have a section of articles on ethics. Uh, and those uh, articles uh, are uh, listed under, uh, they're filtered by uh, subject matter. And there are articles there that can also help you deal uh, with this particular issue. Again, it's not easy. Uh, and it is something that uh, I understand attorneys must, uh, that are dealing in these cases, that it is a challenge, uh, particularly when the attorneys understand that they have the duty of confidentiality, but sometimes, you know, to take these protective measures, uh, they have to go without, um, you know, outside of, of, of that and, and actually, you know, you know, permissibly, uh, albeit, but breaching confidentiality with the clients. Um, does anyone have any questions that I could perhaps answer at this juncture? So there are, um, Sherry, a couple of questions in the Q&A. Um, I can either read them out loud uh, or you could address them. Um, okay. I'll just read them out loud so everybody can hear them. Um, okay. okay, so the first question is, what is the distinction between being appointed a lawyer for a person with diminished capacity and being appointed as guardian, for example, under Mass General Laws 208, Section 15? And then there's a follow-up to that, which says, I should elaborate to say that in cases where the litigants are not represented by counsel, the role of the guardian under Section 15 easily can become blurry in the eyes of the court and the eyes of the litigants. Absolutely. I mean, and I would go on to say that if the client, if the client isn't represented by counsel, yet they need a guardian, they probably should uh, be represented by counsel. Uh, but there is a distinction. I mean, certainly if, if, uh, you know, the guardian is is separate. I mean, they're trying to make that assessment, uh, but they are not actually representing, and it does become blurry. I mean, it's, it's, it's absolutely blurry. I mean, I would seek to have an attorney, uh, if you have a, an individual who's incompetent and with diminished capacity, I would certainly want uh, to see if you could get an attorney appointed for that person, uh, even though you uh, are already appointed as a guardian because the guardian's then making, you know, making certain recommendations, but that may not, um, you know, that, that's going to impact uh, whatever the underlying, underlying legal matter is. Great, thank you. Okay, the next question is, um, one question that has come up for us in civil legal services context is when a client is able to establish an attorney-client relationship, e.g. where DMH ACCS staff are contacting us on behalf of a severely disabled DMH client, how do we evaluate if that person has sufficient capacity to form an attorney-client relationship? Yeah, that's a good question. Sorry, there's a second, second part to that. 
Also, my reading of Mass Rules of Civil Procedure 17 is that GAL is only available if the person meets the standard for appointment of guardian under 190B, which is really a stringent standard, most uh, much more stringent than the standard set out in 1.14B, which seems to present some big practical problems. Love to hear your thoughts on this issue. Sure. So um, I will tell you that I am not an expert in guardianship. Uh, so um, I'm going to focus on the issue of, you know, a, a little bit over the assessment of, you know, how do you determine if the client's competent? And actually, that's a great question to segue into uh, Dr. Uh, uh, Worshba's presentation, uh, because, uh, you know, I know that she's going to address it. But, you know, the lawyer, the rules talk about, you know, reason, you know, reasonably, you know, what the attorney reasonably believes. And so, you know, some, you know, attorneys don't take the time that they really need to with their elderly uh, or clients that they suspect might have a capacity issue. So I think that uh, while it is difficult to make that determination, and you're not a medical practitioner, you know, you want to make sure that the client is oriented. Uh, you want to ask some general questions. You want to find out you know, do they know where they are? Do they know what's happening? You know, you know, you really just try to see whether or not they're oriented and, you know, whether or not they can, you know, how many kids do they have? You know, if we're in the middle of a heat wave, are they aware that we were just in the middle of a heat wave? I mean, you know, but, but just sort of taking the time because, you know, a, a, a client can have capacity in one area, but not in another. And, and that's something to remember, um, you know, in, in this, you know, with clients with, you know, dementia, et cetera, you know, some may, you know, a client may be, for example, able to uh, understand, uh, I'm going to use this, the estate planning context, you know, that they want to give all their property to their son and daughter, uh, but, you know, they can't manage their own checkbook and they can't, they can't do math and they, 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 you know, can't deal with the financial piece. That doesn't mean that that client can't make the decision that they want their property to go to, you know, their son and daughter. Uh, so again, you know, you have to tease it out. And I think you have to tease it out even more so in this area than you do in other areas. And then I think if you determine that there is an issue of competency, uh, that's when you need to take sort of the next steps. And again, um, I think that's going to be addressed in the next, next sec uh, section of this presentation. Great. Thank you. One final question, which is an easy one, is um, will you be sharing the PowerPoint presentation. Is it okay with you to share that in a format that's, that people can take, like perhaps we can email it afterward? Sure, that's absolutely fine. Um, do understand that, you know, the the PowerPoint, the slides were, you know, the, the some of the slides were the rules themselves. Um, our rules are available on our website, uh, along with the comments, and that's always the most current version of the rules. So again, um, I didn't include the comments uh, in my PowerPoint because I didn't want there just to be a hundred you know, thousands of words uh, on the page, but I do recommend taking a look at all of the comments for a real uh, help in the practical application uh, of the rules. And again, don't hesitate to call us if you have any questions. We're happy to, we're happy to try to help you navigate. Great, thank you so much, Sherry. Certainly, thank you. Alrighty, so I think we're gonna hand it over to Rebecca. Great. All right. Um, thank you all so much. Let me see if I can figure out how to share my PowerPoint. Let's take a look. 
Oh, we've got we've got a PowerPoint. Fantastic. Um, so uh, I'm a clinical neuropsychologist, and what I'm going to be talking with everybody about today, um, if I can find my PowerPoint again, Golly. All right, is my PowerPoint being shared right now? Yes, we can see it. Okay, excellent. Figured that'll be the first five minutes of my talk is figuring out PowerPoint. Um, so, uh, okay, so um, what I'm going to be talking with you about today is first of all, what is a neuropsychologist? So you know who I am and the kind of work that I do. Um, we'll be talking about the different kinds of capacities and some tips and tricks that you can do to protect yourself, protect your client. I'll also be sharing some resources that you, you can use um, so that you can help make some of those determinations and also some ideas of when you might wanna actually pass that question on to somebody else, somebody like myself or a medical professional. Um, so for example, let's say that your client, Mr. Jones has come in, he's 85 years old, has four children living with John, his youngest son. John and Mr. Jones come to your office, say that Mr. Jones wants to change his will. He wants John to get 70% and split the remainder between his siblings. So you might wanna be asking yourself, does Mr. Jones have the capacity to make this change? And is Mr. Jones the victim of undue influence? We'll be getting back to Mr. Jones uh, at the end of the presentation so that we can take a look at some of these questions a little bit more deeply. So what is neuropsychology? Who am I? What do I do? Neuropsychology is the intersection between neurology and psychology. Neurology is a medical practice. Neuropsychologists are psychologists. We're PhDs or PsyDs, not MDs. Um, but what we do is try to kind of put together what's happening neurologically. So does somebody have brain changes, hardware changes basically, and psychology, are there software changes that are keeping people uh, from being the way that they used to be or making any sort of changing their cognitive abilities? There are a lot of things that can cause changes in somebody's cognitive abilities. So it could be something neurological like dementia or a traumatic brain injury. Um, it could be something psychological like anxiety or depression or schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. Um, it could be something environmental, um, uh, problems adjusting to new changes. It could be behaviors. It could be problems with sleep, problems with drugs um, that can lead to some of these problems. What a neuropsychologist does is it kind of takes all of these things together, their medical history, um, and tries to get a sense of what's causing these problems. Once we know what's causing it, once we've helped with diagnostics, we can help make recommendations. Um, we also look at their functional capacities. So are they able to do things differently than they used to do? Um, is there any reason why they may not be able to live independently, why they may not be able to manage finances independently? One of the ways that we do this is we basically have them, we put them through their paces, we give them tests in every single neuropsychological domain we can. We look at their attention, their speed, their ability to understand the things that they see. Um, their executive functioning, basically their ability to uh, problem solve. Their verbal memory, visual memory, and emotional functioning. Now I have verbal memory uh, with asterisks because when we're trying to assess dementia, that's almost always one of the big points that we're looking at. Are they able to learn new information? Basically, can they get information into their head? And once that information is in their head, are they able to hold on to it or do they lose it rapidly? 
When we look at all of these domains, we can uh, basically put together cognitive profile areas where they are strong compared to people their age or their education, or are they weaker than expected? Once we have that profile, what does that look like to us? Um, that can really help us differentiate between different dementias. Does this profile look like an Alzheimer's type dementia? Does it look like actually they're fine, they're just you know, they're 85, they're a little older, and they're making the sorts of uh, errors that people normally do make. Um, there's also profiles that look like people where they're just kind of depressed, so they're not able to function as well as they used to. So a neuropsychologist will look at all of these things, help make a differential diagnosis, and then make recommendations based on that. 90% um, of the people that I work with, 95% of the people are older adults where there is a concern with memory. My patients come to me mostly through neurology. I also do capacity evaluations coming from lawyers um, and occasionally adults with brain injury or other neurological concerns to do, again, forensic evaluations. So that's what neuropsychology is. So let's talk about capacity for a moment and how it's different from competency. You might be asked, and I've been asked, is this person competent? Can this person make decisions? And as Ms. Gilmore was, uh, was basically saying, that's not exactly the right question because a person isn't competent or incompetent. A person may have the capacity to make one sort of decision, but not another kind of decision. Um, exactly as she was saying, for example, somebody may be able to make a decision about what they want done with their property. Um, they may be able to make sort of the large decisions about, you know, what they want done with their finances while not being competent to manage their finances kind of on a day-to-day -day level. They may be somebody who's prone to scams, who may be sending their money, you know, across the internet because somebody says that their, uh, you know, that their computer's broken. Maybe they can't manage that anymore, but that doesn't mean that they're incompetent to decide that, you know, if they want to sell their house or if they want to move. So there's different kinds of capacity. There's a testamentary capacity, which is, can they make a will? Do they understand what they own? Um, do they understand who would be the recipient of what they own normally? Um, can they enter into contracts, buy things, sell things? Can they donate money? And these all actually, uh, you need different abilities to be able to do that, to donate something, um, actually might require a, a, a higher level of uh, capacity than to change your will, because if you're donating something while you're alive, that's going to affect you more than changing your will for after you've died. Financial capacity, can you manage sort of that day to day? And then there's also medical decision capacity. Uh, can you decide that you don't wanna use your medication anymore? Can you decide that you do or that you don't want to undergo a surgery that could have some pretty major side effects? All of these things require different amounts of ability to understand, problem solve, use, they use attention or memory. Um, so lots of different things can affect these individual capacities, which is why it's important to, that to know exactly what the question is. What is the exact decision that's being made? Does the person have capacity to make that decision? Another thing you're gonna to wanna to be concerned about is undue influence. Is somebody else acting on that person to act in a way that they wouldn't have done of their own free will? So is that person, the things you're gonna to wanna to be looking for, it spells out scam, that's boy, really convenient. 
uh, you're going to want to be looking for is the victims, are there susceptibility factors? So does this person have reduced cognitive abilities? Uh, do they have emotional concerns that could make them susceptible? Um, is there a confidential and trusting relationship between the victim and perpetrator? So is this a child that's kind of created a, it's you and me against the rest of the world? Is it a new boyfriend or girlfriend? Is it a grandniece that kind of came out of the woodwork and has latched on and said, I'm going to help you. I'm going to be there for you. I'm going to help you with everything, including let's make some changes. Let's have you move into my house. We'll sell your house um, and I'm going to take care of you. Is there that active procurement of the legal and financial transaction by the perpetrator and a monetary loss of the victim? There are a lot of things that can impact uh, susceptibility. So as I said, cognitive factors. So does this person have dementia or cognitive changes? Are they having difficulty comprehending? Are they disoriented? Do they have memory problems? Are they depressed or are they anxious? Is this somebody who's kind of moved in and have they really kind of sunk their closet to somebody such that they're saying, look, you know, I'm here, I'm going to take care of you. Nobody else cares about you, I'm the only one. And if you don't sell your house and move in with me, um, you know, it's over, I can't do this anymore. Um, are there emotional concerns about this person that would make them more susceptible or any behavioral factors, hallucinations, delusions, paranoia that you might see in um, schizophrenia or disinhibition. Um, you might also, again, see those things uh, in somebody with cognitive changes or Alzheimer's disease. Um, I, as I said, I'm a uh, mostly work with older clients. And one of the main things that I see that could affect somebody's uh, cognitive abilities would be dementia. When I say dementia, I'm talking about uh, problems, neurological problems that we expect to get worse and worse and worse over time. Um, everybody's probably familiar with Alzheimer's disease. It's you're going to, this is what you're going to be mostly looking for in your 70 or 80 year old. You're not going to be diagnosing anybody, but uh, you're going to be seeing this in people who have memory problems that are getting worse and worse over time. If somebody's been diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease, it's not going away, and you can expect that the way they are today, it's going to be worse next year. Um, with something like Lewy body dementia, again, this is a condition that will worsen. But one of the things that's most important to know about Lewy body dementia is that their attention may fluctuate. So what that means is that today they may have good attention, they may be able to solve problems, they may have capacity today, but not tomorrow. They may have capacity at you know 9 a.m., but not 2 p.m. on the same day. So that person may have fluctuating abilities over time. Frontotemporal dementia is a dementia where you might actually see somebody in their 40s or their 50s. And even though their memory is okay, uh, they may not be able to understand language, they may not be able to communicate well, or they may be disinhibited in a way that's clearly different from the way they used to be. Um, they may behave really, really badly, and they may have lost their ability to make good decisions in a way that might not immediately be apparent. What you really want to be concerned about, though, are dementia mimics, which would be a person that comes in and they appear to not have capacity. And it may not be due to a dementia, which means that it may be something that's reversible, 
or something that's temporary. So for somebody who has a, a, a delirium or a pseudo dementia, which I'll talk about in just a moment, um, we may not be looking at somebody who lacks capacity today and will lack capacity in a month or two. This may be reversible, you may be able to change it. Um, delirium is gonna be a temporary change due to a metabolic or infectious disturbance or the effects of drugs. Um, if you've worked with elderly clients, then you may have known somebody who had a UTI where, you know, last week they were fine, but suddenly they're hallucinating. Suddenly they don't know where they are. Um, and they clearly can't answer any questions right now. But in that case, you're looking at something that happened very quickly. And if you treat it, then they're going to be okay. Be aware, be on guard if a diagnosis of dementia happened during a hospitalization or immediately following a hospitalization. Um, I've actually had patients who were diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease and had a doctor sign off to say that they no longer had capacity and they had been delirious. When they came to see me, their memory was fine. They had no signs or symptoms of Alzheimer's disease at all. But because they had had that diagnosis made while they were hospitalized, somebody had seen fit to say that they no longer had capacity. Um, that's a real problem. So if somebody's coming in and you have you have a sense that they've recently had some medical changes, um, you might want to see them again. You know, you might want to make sure that they're actively being treated. Another thing to be looking out for is pseudo-dementia. The term isn't really used that much anymore, but the concept is somebody who has had to change their cognitive functioning because of a mood problem. So somebody where their spouse has recently passed away, um, they've recently been forced to move for financial reasons, and now they're just not with it. You know, they can't seem to follow instructions. They can't really seem to understand things. Um, in this case, again, this doesn't mean that somebody has no capacity or that if they don't have capacity today, that they might not be better, you know, that they might not through treatment get, you know, be able to make decisions again. Um, it's also noteworthy that a lot of times somebody may lose their spouse and suddenly it seems like their cognitive functioning has tanked. It's not always because of pseudo-dementia. Sometimes it's because their spouse has been covering for them or you know they've been able to do well with a very certain kind of day-to-day, uh, -day, but as soon as there's a change in that, then there's a change in their functioning. So what should you be doing when somebody comes in? So first of all, always at some point you need to get your client alone. So I've actually had patients who came in where I read their medical records. Their doctor says, um, you know, maybe some minor memory problems, but they're basically okay. And that's what their son or their daughter says as well. And then when I get the patient alone, um, they are incredibly amnestic. Um, but their, their son or daughter has been basically doing everything for them. Um, sometimes I once actually had a patient who didn't understand English by the time they got to me, and that was not reflected in either what the adult child said or what the neurologist said, but because nobody had talked to the patient alone, it wasn't clear uh, exactly the degree of cognitive impairment that they had. So talk to them alone. If you can meet with them more than once to, again, get a sense of whether things are fluctuating over time, 
Um, speak with them in the morning if you can. You know, a lot of times older adults are just fresher in the morning. Speak slowly, speak clearly, minimize the background noise. Make sure that they can hear you. Um, there's a lot of times I've seen people where there's a question of cognitive impairment, but actually they're a little bit deaf. So when you're talking with them, you're going to want to begin with the presumption of capacity. Assume that this person has capacity. That's what we assume about all people. Um, and then see if the, you're gathering any data or observations that go against that. So are they oriented? Again, once you have them alone. Um, in terms of orientation, I don't care if they know the exact date. I don't know today's date. Looking right now, I was a day off. I don't know today's date. I don't care if somebody's a, uh, off. I don't care if somebody thinks it's the end of November when it's the beginning of December. I care if they think it's 1970. I care, uh, as Ms. Gilmore was saying, I care if they don't know what the weather has been like in the past week or if they're not aware of kind of major events that are happening. Um, if they're being asked to, if they're saying that they want to make a major decision, um, you know, somebody, uh, Somebody says that again they want to they want to sell their house and move in with their grandniece. Can they explain what it is that they want to do? Not just nod along when the grandniece says, "Hey, this is what we're doing." Can they explain it in their own words? This is the change I want to make. Can they explain why they want to do it? Is it consistent with their values? You may not know that, you know, if you're just meeting with somebody for the first time, but uh, is this something that, you know, if you're talking with other family members or other family members saying this is not what they've said that they wanted, they always said they wanted to like live and die in their house. Uh, is there some sense that this is not consistent with the sorts of things that they always would have done? And importantly, can they name the pros and cons of their decision? So that doesn't mean that they have to, you know, that they have to uh, say, you know, the, list all the reasons why they might not want to make their decision. You need to make sure that it's an informed decision. So can they say, well, all right, like I understand, even though I don't care about this. Um, I understand that other people might be worried that she's going to take advantage of me. I'm not worried about it for these reasons. Or, hey, I understand that the assisted living facility I'm living in now will uh, give me food and my medication. I'm not worried about that because I'm going to hire somebody else to take care of it. Are they informed? A person can have cognitive impairment, and that doesn't mean that they don't have capacity. Because, again, capacity covers a lot of ground. Um, there are a lot of things that a person can either have or not have capacity in. And cognitive impairment may affect one of those things, but not another. Also, as Ms. Gilmore was saying, bad decisions doesn't mean that they don't have capacity. Um, somebody may, you know, if we're talking about medical uh, capacity, for example, somebody may say that they don't want to use a medication that would save their life. You and I might disagree with that. Um, but maybe this person, again, looking back at their values, maybe they belong to a religious organization and they always would have made that decision. Maybe they always would have said, this is not what's important to me. Um, I'm going to follow my values. Um, maybe somebody is, you know, dating somebody new and wants to change their will. Maybe that's a terrible decision, um, but people are allowed to make bad decisions. So is there any evidence that they don't have capacity? Is there any concern about undue influence? 
If not, maybe this person would have always made bad decisions when they were 40 or when they were 60. Just because they're older now doesn't mean that we immediately say, well, they clearly don't have capacity to make this terrible decision. Um, I want to give you some tools and they'll be uh, at the end of my um, at the end of my presentation as well, I'll have links to these. Uh, the ABA and the APA had got together and basically put together some documents, one for you and one for me, uh, for assessment of older adults with diminished capacity. Um, included in this documentation is going to give you a lot of really good information about what you need to know about older adults that may have or lack capacity and some things that you need to do to basically you know, ensure that you're managing that. It involve it includes some worksheets which are really nice and which may also, you know, in addition to kind of guiding you, can also, if you're filling these worksheets out, you can at least say you've done your due diligence. You know that I'm not. Have I checked to see if they have memory or communication problems? Um, can I have I signed off and said, all right, well, I I feel comfortable that they do understand that. Like I have some data. I have some proof that I actually assessed for these things. So I'll link you that at the end. Another website that I really, really like is by Dr. Lichtenberg. Um, it's called the Older Adult Nest Egg, and it's going to include uh, some, uh, some interviews, some kind of structured interviews for you that you can use if somebody's making a financial decision. Um, these can basically, uh, does this person understand what the decision is that they're going to make? Um, did they make it themselves or did they say that somebody else made it? You can also say, hey, you know, do I know whether this is accurate or not? Um, so in addition to financial decisions, you can assess whether they may be vulnerable um, to undue influence or something else like that. So this is a really great website. Um, it's free to use. Um, and I'd recommend anybody look over that if you're going to be uh, at least getting a sense of whether a person um, may have capacity questions. So when might you want to refer out? So on the one hand, you have somebody where there's just really very little evidence of diminished capacity. Go ahead, you know, represent the person. There's no, uh, there's no concerns. We're going to be assuming that people have uh, capacity to start off with. And you're not seeing anything. You've spoken with them alone. They're oriented. They know what their decisions are. Um, go ahead, you don't need a call out. In, uh, in sections two or three is where there are some capacity concerns, um, where they may, uh, you, you, and those times you may wanna cover yourself and say, hey, I don't know if I feel comfortable with this. Let's refer out, let's bring somebody in who can really do an assessment of whether, uh, of whether this person may lack capacity. And then on the other hand, there may be times where obviously the person lacks capacity, where they're coming in and they are wildly disoriented. Um, they don't know what they're doing there. They, you know, the, what they're saying is very different from what the person who brought them in is saying. In those cases, the, you can't proceed. Um, you're going to need to try to find some way around that um, because at that point you you don't need me to come in and say you know hey this person lacks capacity if they clearly have no idea what they're doing there. Um, so what can you do when you have those questions? So there's some options. So one is just a consultation. So you can call a clinician and say hey I have some concerns about my you know hypothetical John Smith, um, you know this person who's in their mid 80s and they said the following things. 
Um, in those cases, if you're just getting a consultation, you don't need consent because you're not uh, using any identifying information. You're not, you know, you're it's it's vague enough that you can do that without getting the person's permission. You can refer them. So get a formal referral to a clinician, which would require the consent of the person or their proxy or guardian. Um, sometimes that can include a written report. It may not need to. Um, you can refer to a neuropsychologist such as myself who does capacity evaluations. You could also refer them to the physician, a geriatric psychologist, or a geriatric assessment team. Um, so again, as a neuropsychologist, uh, the vast majority of the patients that I see are patients. They're coming from neurologists, and they're not asking me about capacity. They're asking me about diagnostics. Um, so... Uh, so normally, if somebody comes to me through my through a neurologist, uh, through insurance also, um, I'm not going to speak to capacity because that's not considered medically necessary. Um, if somebody comes to me forensically through a lawyer, then uh, I would do a capacity evaluation. Um, sometimes you don't need to do that. Sometimes their physician, sometimes their neurologist feels comfortable enough to say whether they do or don't have capacity. Um, that's always a nice thing to check in on because uh, if somebody comes through me to me through a lawyer, then they're, it's not covered by insurance. Lots of times a physician feels comfortable enough to make that determination. So there's different avenues and different options of um, being able to refer to get that second opinion. So let's go back to Mr. Jones. He uh, has four kids and his youngest uh, son, uh, John, who lives with him. They wanna change the will to be 70% to John and split the rest. So what are things we're going to do? We're going to talk to Mr. Jones alone, and we're going to uh, ask him again, what is it that you want to do and why do you want to do it? Um, you're going to want to see whether what he says is the same when he's in front of John or when he's away from John. Is he afraid of John? Is he afraid that John's going to leave him uh, if he doesn't make this change? Can he discuss the pros and cons of making this decision? Again, even if he wants to, is he aware that when he does this, he might you know, be nuking his relationship with his other three children? Maybe he is aware of that and he wants to do it anyway. Um, but can he name the pros and cons of making these decisions? So in this case, we might wanna go through uh, where the worksheet that you had before, you may wanna use uh, Dr. Lichtenberg's website to try to make sure that he's not, uh, that there's no undue influence and that he has the capacity to make this sort of decision. So thank you everybody. This is uh, here at the bottom is where I have the websites of some of these resources, um, the older adult nest egg, again, that's through Dr. Lichtenberg and the APA slash AB, uh, the APA guide uh, that was put together with the ABA. Um, and that's going to be, boy, I hope I gave you the one for lawyers and not the one for psychologists. But if I gave you the wrong one, there's always Google to help you out. So thank you. Thank um, you. Okay. So um, I'm just going to look at the questions. So, uh, so there was the first question, how would you recommend estate planning practitioners evaluate capacity to sign estate planning instruments? Are there any questions you'd recommend? So again, in those cases, um, if you feel like, uh, if you feel like um, you can answer that sort of question, if you feel comfortable doing that, I would use um, some of those resources that I just sent you. 
um, which can really help kind of break it down. It's a real, they're really nice ways of guiding you through figuring out whether that person may have capacity. Um, if you are not particularly impressed by, uh, by their answers and you feel like you want a second opinion, then you might want to refer out for that second opinion. Um, and what are my thoughts and suggestions for a question about capacity, but the person's unwilling to undergo a formal assessment? That's a great question. Um, and that's um, a real concern, I think, because a lot of times somebody, so first of all, again, if, if it's coming to me um, or a neuropsychologist, anything forensic is going to potentially be expensive and somebody may not want to do that. But also a lot of times when people have cognitive problems, they uh, they don't want to do anything. They don't want to go to another doctor or, you know, they are apathetic as a symptom of whatever their uh, disorder is. Um, in that case, you have a few options. So one is, you know, you may be able to get some information from medical records or you can hire somebody who feels comfortable reviewing medical records, assuming you have them. Um, and you can also, again, use some of those tools. Uh, even, you know, even in casual conversation, you may get enough data to either suggest that you feel comfortable um, moving forward or not. I think there are a lot of times where you might get some responses that let you know right now this person does not have capacity. Um, and that just might be enough in sort of that casual conversation. Can you bring in questions about what's happening in the world? Can you bring in questions about, uh, about their ability to make those individual decisions? I think it's great to be able to refer out, but if you can't, and if you feel like you're on your own, um, you know, I wouldn't proceed if you, you know, if, 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 if you're, if you're on the fence, you know, I would take care of yourself. Um, but you may be able to get enough information to at least sway you one way or the other to say, now I am comfortable or, you know what, I'm still uncomfortable and I don't think I can move forward without getting additional information. Okay. Great. I think that's it for the questions and uh, it's 12.59, so we've got one minute to spare right under the wire. Um, so I wanna thank you both again for presenting today. This was super, super helpful um, and we really appreciate it. Great, thanks so much. Take care.